we talk about change a lot. One of the things I think it's important to highlight that's the same over time is that blacks will gravitate to the party that they think is going to be best for the group. And so if for some reason another party chooses to be the champion of the issues that black folks care about most, we would expect another change. But, you know, underlying all of the changes is that one staple of, of black folks carefully considering the well-being of the group when making political decisions. From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy in the studios of WPSU on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. So, Michael, we've left Chris behind for this episode. Good move, Jenna. Yeah, right? So today, uh, Michael, I'm going to turn the interviewer microphone over to you for a bit of a roundtable discussion on black politics with two of our colleagues from Penn State, Ray Block and Candace Watts-Smith. Uh, Ray is the author of Losing Power, African-Americans and Racial Polarization in Tennessee Politics. And Candace is the author of a forthcoming book called Racial Stasis. And they are both associate professors of African-American studies and political science here at Penn State. With uh, New Hampshire and Iowa behind us, the nominating process moves into more diverse states. In the upcoming South Carolina Democratic primary, We can expect that African-Americans will cast more than half the ballots. So we can expect that the issues and concerns of the black community will become more relevant to the campaign. Which, of course, makes sense because African-Americans are very much a critical component of the Democratic Party base. I thought given your expertise in the election, we could focus on a few topics today. One of them uh, has to do with the unique concerns and issues of African-Americans. Another would be some of the differences within this community, in particular generational ones, that might offer us some insights into the future of black politics. The implications of African-Americans' alignment with the Democratic Party. And finally, given what we know of blacks and whites, whether we're moving to a place where race and racism is less of a political concern. So we've got lots to cover today. So with that, I am literally going to get out of the way in our small studio here and uh, turn it over to you. All right. Thank you, Jenna. Ray, Candace, thank you for joining us on Democracy Works. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Michael. Sure. I'm looking forward to this. Ray, I want to start with, uh, I'm going to start with you. And I want to start with a quote that you use in your book about party polarization and racial politics. And the quote is from Haynes Walton, who was a political scientist in Michigan. And Walton wrote in the early 1970s that, quote, black politics are a function of the brand of segregation found in different environments in which black people found themselves. Ray, can you talk a little bit about how the legacy of segregation and contemporary structural racism shaped the black experience in our democracy? Yeah. That's a big question, isn't it? (laughs) It is, but it's a good question to start with. And so as a person who studies demographically marginalized groups, in, you know, from the perspective of political science, it's important to know that most of the innovations in the field of racial and ethnic politics are reactions to the issues of race and ethnic and gender relations in the United States. And so the field itself is a reflection and in some ways a response mm-hmm. to the tensions and the unresolved issues that are happening in society. So it makes sense that if you're going to think about black politics, for example, it's important to think about race relations and how they were 
and how they currently continue to marginalize people of color in general. And as my focus is on African-Americans, I'll spend more time talking about that. Mm -hmm. So there are people doing work on rural parts of the South and large segments of African-American populations in what most people would think of as predominantly white spaces. And so I think I think Walton's way of thinking about this stuff is that the places where African-Americans happen to be are very numerous. And it's really important to understand how those dynamics not only shape how policies play out, but also shape how leaders make decisions and how voters think and act in political context. Uh-huh. Uh, Candace, jump in at any time. Yeah, I to. just, yeah. I mean, I, I, I really, in, that quote um, is really important and it makes me also think, just to kind of uh, speed through time a little bit, that there's works like um, Jamila Mishner who really show that, you know, where you, you know, what you get out of politics has nothing to do with your needs. It may just be where you live. It may depend on the politics of that place. And, For black politics in particular, we can think about how where you live influences your outcome. So if you are someone who's living in New Orleans, you might be really uh, thinking about questions of climate change or schools. Or if you are thinking about issues of affordable housing, those might be especially critical to people who are living in Oakland versus in comparison to the suburbs of Atlanta, where homes might be more affordable. Just even when we're talking about black politics, drilling down to the local level in many ways will highlight the kind of heterogeneity, not just in people's attitudes, but in the problems that they face. So uh, one legacy of... uh segregation has to be uh, blacks movement into the Democratic Party. Uh, so how did the civil rights movement and the legislative reactions to it and something like the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, how did these shape black political behavior? I feel like we can go back further than that. If we okay. To, well, right? we could. Right. Yes. But I'm um, thinking specifically about that. You have to remember that if we're looking at this during the civil rights movement period, we're looking at a movement that was geared very specifically towards voting rights. So the idea was this would be one of the many ways that we can show progress when it comes to race. And because of that, I always like to think about the fact that the movement itself, combined with the people that were involved in the movement, were trying to do things to expand the franchise, right? And for as long as I can remember, conversations about expanding or, I guess, not expanding the franchise have always been partisan. Now, of course, the faces of the parties change, right? So like now there's a conversation to be had where one party is very much invested in expanding the franchise and another one isn't, right? History might show that the party faces change, but I always go back to this idea that one of the major things that made the civil rights movement something that needed to happen was that people who weren't typically getting access to this particular part of politics were pushing for it and successfully finding ways to make those arguments to get into it. One party happened to be more okay than the other party when it comes to that, and that has a non-trivial reason to deal with the party alignments being the way that they are and the changes in the party alignments before that. I think we we talk about change a lot. One of the things I think it's important to highlight that's the same over time is that blacks will gravitate to the party that they think is going to be best for the group. And so, you know, if for some reason, reason another party chooses to be the champion of the issues that black folks care about most, 
we would expect another change. But, you know, underlying all of the changes is that one staple of, of black folks carefully considering the well-being of the group when making political decisions. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that there's this historical legacy and support for the civil rights movement, but a continuation of feeling that the Democratic Party is more in tune with their needs. Or if you want to say the converse of that, that Mm -hmm. a continuing perception Mm -hmm. that the Republican Party steps behind when it comes to addressing these needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, we've been hearing a lot about how some candidates within the Democratic Party are having a challenging time making inroads among black voters. Uh, Pete Buttigieg has really struggled among blacks, at least in the polls. And the narrative has been that Joe Biden has strength among blacks. Bernie Sanders, according to some polling that I've seen, uh, looks like he's gaining strength among older African-American voters. Same with Michael Bloomberg. This raises all kinds of questions to me. The first up, what's up with uh, Mayor Pete? Is it a question of familiarity, discomfort with him in some way? Do you have any sense that is it overstated that he's having trouble with African-American voters? I think that we have to consider the calculation that black folks are making, generally speaking. Okay. And so, sure, maybe it's that Pete Buttigieg doesn't have very much familiarity, that there are some questions about his reputation in his own hometown that has a large black population. But we might also think about why focus people are focused on Bernie and Biden. These are two old white guys when we used to have a slate of candidates that included more w- people and women of color, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris. And, you know, there's the part about policy, and then there's also the part about just pure political calculation. Who can beat Donald Trump? And so I think that, you know, Pete Buttigieg's, uh, uh, his assessment, you know, how people are assessing him is not necessarily maybe even about Pete Buttigieg himself, but who can beat Trump. And I think that people are really focused, that black folks believe that it's going to be somebody like Biden or somebody like Bernie Sanders. Well, or Michael Bloomberg. Or Michael Bloomberg. Which is something that they might say in him because he comes at it with so... so That's right. Yeah. So there's a a practicality uh, to, to the voting that maybe supersedes ideological concerns at this stage? Well, I feel like that's the wrong way to think about it. So like okay. supersedes means that there's a um, there's a way for them to be ordered so that maybe ideology could one day not be behind these other considerations. But the reality for a lot of African-Americans is that you have to do this stuff. So it's both practical and the limited options for what you have. I mean, like yeah. the slate of candidates that we've gone through was large and is starting to dwindle with each week, right? So... The people from which African-American voters will choose has shrunk. And we're now at a place where Bloomberg and Pete and Biden and Sanders. Right. They're coming into South Carolina with an all-white slate of candidates. Right, right. And it's one of those things where, like, either you sit it out or you figure out some way to convince yourself that you've found a candidate that you think is electable, which is also saying that they can beat the incumbent. But also you're looking for a candidate that's going to do the least amount of damage to the communities that you're connected to. And those aren't necessarily the practical choices. Those are Mm -hmm. the choices. Mm -hmm. Like it's not like you're choosing from options anymore. You're thinking about this in terms of what's going to work and what's going to be functional. And electability will have to take a front seat to some of these issues because there are concerns across the board. 
with the remaining slate of candidates when it comes to how race relations are going to look if these people were to gain political office. Well, how do you how do you think uh, how do you think Bernie Sanders resonates in this community? Is there a sense pie in the sky? It's too much. We need to be more practically oriented, or or a sense that. Huh, if this could really be this kind of radical change is is a, is a good thing. I mean, it's striking to me that, you know, here's a candidate who's really trying to make an appeal on class basis. And so often in American history, race was used to divide working class blacks from working class whites. I mean, going back to machine politics, this this is kind of the American political legacy. And Bernie Sanders is trying very hard to unite everybody around a real class-based agenda. It's not an identity-based agenda. It's a class-based agenda. Do you have any thoughts about how it resonates to you anyway? I mean, I'm not asking you to speak for everybody, but... but. So my sense is that a lot of Sanders' stances are ones that are in line with how black folks would ideally see American politics play out. But... If they think that they are dreaming too big. And so I and, and I think about, for example, the oh, 2008, man, it would be great to see a black man as president. But we rem- we have to keep in mind that black folks weren't behind Obama initially. Right. Because they, had they to were see him win and they had first. to see him win first. And so, um, you know, now that we we see Bernie providing proof that he can win over a large number of white voters that here we see that. Right. And there's an increase of older black folks who are like, oh, OK, well, maybe this is yeah. a possibility. Yeah, it's pretty dramatic. So, again, mm-hmm. when we think about the calculation that people are making is who is going to be this particular incumbent. And so if people are going to get signs that Sanders that seems like pie in the sky, like a socialist who wants to care about poverty and health care and all of the things that we care about, if we can actually get him then let's go for it. But if we don't think that we can get him, then we're going to get the next best thing, uh, the next the next best candidate that would beat Trump. So let's transition a little bit from talking about the presidential campaign. The president often tells African-Americans that they should recognize that the Democratic Party hasn't done anything for them and that they have nothing to lose by coming to the Republican Party. That was his line from the campaign, actually. His Super Bowl ad featured a black woman who he had released from prison. I'm not convinced his black outreach isn't actually intended to make white voters feel more comfortable with him, but be that as it may, it begs the question, what are the implications of committing so fully to one party in a two-party system, in particular when the parties are so polarized? Yeah, yeah. So like, um, I just keep thinking of Paul Freimer's work and the politics of party capture, right? And so we're... Things are what they are. And what they are is we've sorted ourselves out as Americans. And it's pretty easy to be sorted these days. And the sorting works itself out so that African-Americans have a clear tendency to be in the ranks of the Democratic Party. You can interpret that a whole bunch of ways. You can interpret that as a sheer preference. So the Democratic Party is more attractive to black voters. It's a fair interpretation. The other interpretation is is that African-American voters don't necessarily see an alternative in the the Republican Party. And that's an alternative interpretation that gets pushed back upon. And you'll see, you know, like there'll be months that pass and then there'll be events that sort of call into question whether or not black voters are gettable for the GOP. 
And then those those moments will pass and other moments will come. And there will be people that lean to the right politically Mm -hmm. that will happen to be African-Americans that will make strong cases for why black voters need to come over into the Republican Party. And they're like hashtags for this stuff these days, right? Oh, are there? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the walkaway movement and Uh Blexit would be be examples of this stuff, Uh, right? Yeah. But this idea that the party sorting can have multiple interpretations is the thing that I think we should focus on, right? And so, like, there is the Democrats are better interpretation. But then there's the Republicans are worse interpretation. Candace, let's uh, – your recent work is – looks at uh, different generations of African Americans and whites in, in terms of some of their in terms of some of their attitudes. So we we know that different generations are shaped by different events. Mm-hmm. So our students never knew the world before 9/11. Mm-hmm. My generation, I'm a boomer and you guys are millennials, uh, hit under the desk, hit under our desk to prepare for nuclear attack. I bet you guys didn't do that. Is that right? But your kids are probably practicing active shooting drills in school. So very different experiences. Uh, Younger black Americans didn't live through the heart of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, How are they different? Well, um, again, I think the differences are important, right? So this group is more educated, you know, but, They're more educated, and they exist within a more diverse generation. Yes, and that's where I want to point out the similarities, is mm-hmm. that they don't go to schools that are legally segregated, but they still go to segregated schools. That We they, did a podcast episode on this, actually, about how segregation is about as much as yeah, it ever as, was. As that's right. Yeah. And is rising. Right, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, that they are going to college, but they are saddled with debt, that the wealth gap has not closed, that their income, uh, that their, you know, return on their investment in higher education is not the same as their peers. So... In some ways, there's more frustration, right, that we have this situation where we've had a black president elected twice and we still have some of the same disparities that we've had since the civil rights movement. So in that way, I mean, I can see why um, millennials and potentially Gen Zers are just going to be a little bit more progressive, more radical, because what's the status quo is not working. And that requiring and requesting moderate candidates to do incremental change, it's not doing the work that yeah. people anticipated that it would. The Democrats who, who fought for civil rights legislation were not a part of their lives, that their ties to the Democratic Party are somewhat weaker. I mean, on the other hand, as you just said, their children will there was the first black president. So maybe they're actually stronger. I I don't know. But is there a different, do you know what I mean? Is there a different connection? The extent to which people identify with the party and would say that they are staunch Democrats, I think there's definitely a decline there. But there is probably not, you know, there's not a decline in which candidates that they're willing to support. Mm -hmm. Because again, we're in this two-party situation where your choices are limited, right? I mean, you really don't have a choice. I'm also thinking about um, Ishmael White's and Cheryl Laird's work just about uh, how social politics is for black folks. And so, you know, we still live in communities where you recognize that, sure, I have a college education or I have a PhD or I have this opportunity, but there are people in my family and my community who don't have those opportunities. When I started studying race politics in grad school, 
the puzzle that really got me fascinated was the puzzle that I had figured out when I was in the Ralph Bunch Summer Institute. And I got a copy of Michael Dawson's Behind the Mule. Uh-huh. And in the very early chapters of that book, he mentions this puzzle. And it kind of gets back to the Sanders message, the let's fix class biases, right? And it's sort of a Marxian claim that, you know, if class issues are at the base, right? All other social cleavages occupy the superstructure of society. And if we can address the true cleavages of class, then things are going to work out for the other differences. And so if you took that logic and you applied it to race relations in the U.S., right, the assumption would be that as black people started to accumulate more wealth, and as black people became more educated, or as whatever the indicators are that show that a group is doing better financially and economically, right? We have indicators that show progress when it comes to that. But the ideas and preferences and political viewpoints of black America and white America remain noticeably different. And there are tons of studies to confirm Mm -hmm. this over and over again. I want to pick up a a bit on what you just said about uh, experiencing the world differently. And this, to me, I, I know you also had a quote in your book from Andrew Hacker about two nations, mm-hmm. blacks and whites, living in, in different countries, mm-hmm. essentially. And I'm thinking about Black Lives Matter. And Candace, I think this really, really goes to you a bit. Uh, so I think most whites understand Black Lives Matter as just having to do with uh, – in terms of police relations. That's why Blue Lives Matter has become this kind of counter in especially the conservative white white community. But within the black community and those active in the in the BLM movement, what, what, what is it about? Is that a fair characterization of it or is it actually about much more? Sure. I, so I let me just go back one step is mm-hmm. that I think that the reason why the Blue Lives Matter alternative works is because it deflects from the problem at hand, which is racism. Mm -hmm. And so if you are in the belief that racism is not an issue, then we can focus somewhere else. The thing about Black Lives Matter and police, Uh right, is that policing, we we live in a situation where we're we're talking about structural racism, Mm -hmm. right? And it is hard to see structural racism. It's hard to see segregated schools if you don't know that they exist, right? You, you think that your way of life is typical, normal, and good. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't see wealth inequality, if you don't see health disparities, it's hard to understand systematic inequality. But you can see a police officer shooting an unarmed black person, and you can see many of those videos on YouTube. And so... The pol- the issue around policing becomes just simply the easiest illustration of of systematic inequality. But what that has meant is that then people have taken this call for Black Lives to matter to be about to be anti police. Doesn't it also capture something that's a, a part of everyday life? Just like this this fear that your life is at risk just by going outside. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you know. I'm giving a TED Talk on Sunday, and I start off with that, is that I live in fear of my child's life, right? And so I think that part of, uh, you know, what Black Lives Matter is just focusing on is this idea that black lives don't matter, that people don't see black folks as full human beings that are worth 
you know, the full rights and values and health and education and all of these things that, right, that, that's, the, that's the effort and goal. Whether people are willing to accept that is obviously we see through All Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter as, um, excuse me, All Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter as alternatives um, just shows us how people are willing to not see what they don't want to see. Are there generational differences, do you think, in how the Black Lives Matters movement is received? Yeah, Yeah. and this is actually a conversation (laughs) that I keep having with my mentor, uh, uh, one of my mentors, Carrie Haney at Duke, who's like, you know, you young people, you guys don't get it. You know, you guys, you got, you know, his, his argument is that this movement looks leaderless. It looks like it's all over the place, that people are just being very rowdy. And I think that, um, you know, there is a generational, I'll say this, there is a, there's a shared understanding of what the problems are. Mm -hmm. There is a difference in the understanding of what should be done about it Mm -hmm. and the approach. And I, but I would make the argument that, um, you know, older black folks want to see a replication of what they remember about the civil rights movement, Mm -hmm. not necessarily how the civil rights movement actually went down. Oh, preach that's so on, sister. Preach on. Yeah, yeah. So is that maybe I'm going beyond what you were saying? But is that a movement in terms of that being a movement with clearer leadership, a more hierarchical, more organization to it than? So those are the perks, right? Like you can say those things about the like the contrast is just an interesting thing to talk about anyway. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. BLM is not trying to replicate. The civil rights movement. Uh, They're actually um, the people that are adherents to the movement really focus on the fact that the issues, even though they're very similar, the approaches are different. So there's more of a, what I want to say, there's more of a spirit of collaboration across different groups and more of a diversity of issues that are being covered. And this is important because I feel like one of the things that I laugh about is that like um, older people have the benefit of being old now. And thinking about what things were like when they were young. And the civil rights movement was extremely controversial. The polling data shows this. It was like the nation was divided on whether it was a good idea. You know, mm-hmm. nonviolent protests got similar amounts of backlash that violent, well, that what I want to call well, that's less why, that's why King church oriented. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. going to say that's why King addressed uh, his letter from Birmingham jail to the white moderates. Yeah. Right? Yeah. As a way of saying, where are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, I like the fact that, like, so, like, um, we have the benefit, I guess, on the back end of talking about a movement that was successful for what it did. We don't talk as much about how controversial these things were when they took place Mm -hmm. and how many feathers were being ruffled by what was going on down south during the civil rights movement, even though the leadership had to its advantage a narrative about faith and a narrative about religion and a narrative about coming together and collaborating, right? And even that message met with some very strong backlash. And so, like, to me, the backlash is the constant. You have different generations dealing with social and political inequality in their unique ways and still facing the backlash. So, like, at the end of the day, it's the structure itself that puts us in a position to have these skirmishes. That's really it, really the issue, and not the approaches that people are taking to deal with those issues. So let me shift a bit here. And Candace, I think this probably goes goes to you. It's, you know, on this theme about how younger generations are, are somewhat different, we often hear, and I, I experience this in my classroom, that this is the most diverse generation 
that younger younger whites register as highly tolerant on many issues, gay marriage, for example. Uh, so are, are we are we simply growing our way out of white racism through generational replacement? No. I thought you might answer that. <laughs> you know what? I was. Um, I think that one thing that we have to keep in mind is that we tend to think that young people young white people especially, are going to usher in a more racially egalitarian society when we know for a fact that they are raised by people who don't necessarily value those things. And so I'm never really sure how we have the expectation that our youngest generations are going to do things that we have not equipped them to do. Hmm. Um, So sure, they can value diversity and multiculturalism, but we don't put them in situations where they live diverse lives. Going back to diverse, going back to segregated schools. Right, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm never really sure why we expect young people, they don't fall out of the sky and, and raise themselves, right? We've socialized them to have a particular set of beliefs or point of view. Maybe they'll get a, maybe they'll be a little different, but we shouldn't expect kids to be totally different from the previous generation. Um, And even we can think about kind of, yeah, the, you know, we can think about what we are seeing right now, that, um, that these kids are, that we see more protest, but we don't see a large set of white folks in Black Lives Matter movements. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so, so, you know, how do we square that, right? We, how do we, believe that they're going to do all of these things when we don't see them doing it. So do you think blacks have experienced this presidency differently? Trump is remarkably schizophrenic about African-Americans. You know, I think about the State of the Union address. He gave the Medal of Freedom to a man who profits (laughs) from saying racially divisive things. Mm -hmm. I read a blog entry recently and the title of the blog entry was something to the effect of Trump was right. Democrats are ruining the country. And the title doesn't really give justice to the art, like, you know, to the actual blog entry, because the blog entry essentially talks about how racial hierarchies are baked in to what we call democracy in the United States. And folks get really mad when you say that. And you can find evidence to show this all the way up to how the framers of the Constitution made arrangements about how it would work, right? But the point of it is that if the default is that racial hierarchies are really normal and Democrats with the agenda that is as progressive as it is are doing something to upset that, then it's kind of true that Democrats are messing with U.S. democracy. It's a very it's a very cynical take, right? And I'm yeah. not saying you should agree with it. Well, I wanna... But a lot of my colleagues, when they saw what happened with the, you know, with the outcome of the election, those were the kind of thoughts they had. And they're unfortunately familiar thoughts to a lot of people in those communities. Yeah. Let me, let me return to that, to what you just said a minute ago about racial hierarchies being built into American democracy. And this is the question I should have asked with all that preface about Donald Trump and the State of the Union. Do, do you think there are concerns – and maybe you've already answered it, Ray. Do you, do you think there is some – that there is some of the same concerns about the future of democracy that many other Democrats and white never Trumpers for that matter who are pretty conservative – that they're often articulating a certain set of fears about the future of American democracy. I do. I do. Do, do, you just sh- do you share those? Do you think within the black community there's like another set of discussions going on about 
one of them, I would think, would be what you just said, that racial hierarchies are always built into American democracy, and that's not changing under the Trump presidency. But yeah, so I can't speak for all black folk, but well, I can I, say that the norms, <laughs> like, so democratic norms, like, people who value democratic norms, regardless of how you feel about those norms, are very concerned, because we're watching in real time the erosion of various democratic norms. Mm-hmm. And I'm using democracy with a big D. Like, you know, in this term, I'm thinking about, like, what it means to live in a state that subscribes to these ideals. And for the people who are really invested in the norms and in preserving the customs and the ideas, there's a real concern that a presidency like the one we have, because it's so different from what we've had before and arguably less beholden to democratic norms than anything we've ever seen before for a lot of different reasons, that I think causes a specific type of concern that mm-hmm. people might be expressing that I think might be unique to the moment that we're in. I, I think that's very true. Yeah. Well, I think we're out of time. Uh, God, we could just keep on going. Thank you very much. Thank you, Appreciate Michael. it. I learned a lot. So from uh, the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, uh, I'm Michael Berkman, and this has been Democracy Works. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Episodes are engineered by Andy Grant and Craig Johnson, edited by Chris Kugler and Mark Stitzer, and reviewed by Emily Reddy. Our interns this semester are Nicole Grayson and Stephanie Crane, to graduating seniors in the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications at Penn State. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in your favorite podcast app. Democracy Works is part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts focused on civic engagement, civil discourse, and democracy. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our member shows and view playlists on topics like immigration and impeachment that are curated from across member shows. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.